Oh yes, first with regard to the question we just touched on uh, yesterday, more or less technical nature about what sort of raises should be made. Uh, what I gather apparently are uh, differences of opinion as to, as to what we should do with regard to the stone. So I would make the following suggestion, which I think should be uh, acceptable to everyone. Uh, I would suggest the following, that since there are some who, uh, who are rather anxious to see to it that Tuesday should be devoted only to this, perhaps you should do the following. On, uh, on Tuesday, just to Torechush uh, Amban, and uh, but on Wednesday we should have you know the, the regular shear, but then in addition on a voluntary basis for those who are who are interested in the morning, perhaps we should have uh, another shear in our table. It wouldn't interfere with the others. Is that acceptable? Well, is that all right? Is that Wednesday morning, we'll have an, an additional year, but on a, on a voluntary basis. And what? Well, I, I mean, what? I mean, if there are, there's a number who's interested, because for me, I've two hours. If there's some who are interested, it's nice. No, if it's to be done, it's got to be undertaken on a, on a regular basis. I, uh, I'm not uh, hitting this proposition. How many Wednesday morning gathers here? Fifteen. I don't mean that. Uh, this should not be viewed as uh, placing in a prejudicial light anyone who doesn't volunteer. I mean, maybe some people have... More obligations in other in other areas. Right, yeah, I don't know. Most of All right, is that acceptable? All right, I don't know how much we'll cover in uh, in Achevel. Maybe we'll go a little more quickly. Achevel is easier than Gezalitz, but. Uh, All right, okay. All right, we'll start the uh, start the beginning. I will start for next week, because tomorrow already Sabbath day she has to prepare. So. Well, no, well, there's time to prepare. Normally, you'd have from Monday to Wednesday to prepare. In other words, Tuesday, you wouldn't have to prepare for a shearing tomorrow. So. All right, so on a, on a voluntary basis, I can call, call this whoever, whoever wants. All right, so we'll start the lead out the next week. We'll start the first mission, uh, first mission in Hachevel, and all right, we'll see how much we can. Perhaps we'll go a little more quickly. Now. What time? All right, so what happened? Nine, nine to eleven? What do you prefer? Not, 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 from nine to eleven. Alright, that's about nine to eleven. Alright, so. Nine is better. 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 Nine is uh, 9.15. 9.15. Oh, 9.15 to 11.15. All right, okay. All right, I want to uh, just finish up what I started discussing last week. The, what I'm going to discuss, uh, these are matters which require much fuller discussion, and in due time we'll see them, but uh, now I simply want briefly more or less to sketch or to survey. Uh, remember last week I discussed the, in general the question of scalus or revelation uh, plays somewhat against the background of sort of dual relation in which the Ben Shalom stands to 
the world, to the Bria generally, and particularly to, to us, I mean, to man particularly. And uh, as I mentioned then, of course, uh, we have adhered uh, rather strongly to the position of these two elements, in other words, the notion of the Benishon is being Kodesh Venalo, and completely transcendent to the world, a Tomil Venalo, that uh, this does not contradict the possibility of a very real, or not possibility, but the reality of a very real involvement and a certain sense of imminence uh, in the world. Uh, just how these two elements to be reconciled, I'll try to discuss at some later date, but that we do uh, insist on this, uh, this duality is, is quite clear. As a matter of fact, it's something which is reflected in, in many, many ways, and not only in, um, in many psukim, but even in, for instance, take a relatively ordinary matter, for instance, in brachet. You know, all brachas we say really in a rather strange manner. You begin a, uh, we begin in the se- in the second person, and we conclude always in the third person. Or not always in the third, in the third person. The shenim were asked about this. I mean, why? Why this sort of dual approach? I believe, although I could, I was unable to find it when I looked for it. I believe that the Ramban somewhere in Chumash, in one line, I think, comments about it. But when he does, it doesn't. The Rashi and the does. Rashi and the was asked about this. And uh, the Ashavah said it was for this reason, to indicate that while on the one hand we feel that we have a, a way of approaching the Ben Shalom, we have some contact with him, but on the other hand that he remains an essential being, remains uh, distant and removed from us. There always remains this chasm uh, between ourselves and, and the Ben Shalom. So we begin in the second person, but yet go over to the third person. Abchayim also in the Nefesh Achayim, the first Shah, he goes to great lengths to develop uh, this general idea, the general problem of tefillah and the relation of uh, the Ben Shalom to us uh, with respect to the particular medium of, uh, of tefillah. But this, I, I mentioned the brachas is just one reflection on this. You have many others. For instance, the take again something which is relevant to tefillah, much uh, the way in Shemanesra, the way we begin. We begin with bracha Bavais and then Gvurais and then Kedush Hashem. So Vidalevi says in the Kuzari, why this sort of uh, structure? Because the first two brachas we actually emphasize the Ben Shalem's involvement in the world. First of all, his involvement in the events related to human society, and secondly, those which relate to the natural world. This is first Avais, and then Gvura. So this might might have led us to assume that uh, somehow we should have a wholly immanental conception of the Ben Shalem. So this is why in the third bracha we come back to to Kodesh, and the contrary to stress the complete an absolute transcendence. And actually, you know, we've insisted not only on developing these two concepts simultaneously, but insisting on their coexistence within a certain single framework. Al-Kadin, the first three brachas, are one bracha. Precisely for this reason, that you shouldn't conceive of one of these elements as being disjunct from the other, but on the contrary, seeing that both of them have to be integrated within a single conceptual framework. But, uh, I said this is another question I want to take up. Now, I simply want to just sketch briefly what are actually the forms of Hisgalus that have been vouchsafed, have been granted uh, to us. What are the manifestations or the revelations that, with which we come into contact? I think one might distinguish uh, five, but uh, as I said, this is simply to serve as a, as a brief sketch. Uh, first of all, and I more or less alluded to it and with reference to the Bracha of Burais, uh, first of all, there is a hisgalus within the, the natural world, within the world of nature. When I say hisgalus in this sense, well, of course, you know, there are Michaelis and Tanakh for this, Shemayim, Mishapim, Kveit, Kei, Lemesi, Yadav, Magidor, Kiyah, perhaps the 
the best known post, there's all talk about Kinashi in a sense, many others. But what I mean is not only what is perhaps superficially suggested by those Tsukim, but something else. If you take those Tsukim perhaps at face value, you might see these simply as being, as constituting not so much a revelation of that somehow his will has been revealed through the creation, through the natural world, but simply that his, his glory, so to speak, his kreid kale, has been shown, has been demonstrated by it. In other words, not, we might take it to mean, not merely that, not that this is a, somehow a revelation, so to speak, of his will, or his, his character, but uh, simply it demonstrates his greatness, it's a manifestation of his ability, so to speak, of what he can do, what he has done, and that, uh, this is shown by the, by the majesty and the beauty of the natural world. And as such, it would be primarily, perhaps, a sort of an aesthetic revelation. In other words, the... And we speak of it in terms of Kovet and Hodah. I mean, again, in Bokhinachi, Hodah, Lavashta. The sense of that we're overwhelmed by what we see in the natural world, by the beauty of nature, and that uh, this somehow reveals to us Lebenshle. To what extent is perhaps problematic. Historically, this is varied. I mean, to what extent the natural world has spoken, so to speak, with this religious voice. But, what I'm thinking of is not only this, not merely the fact that there is so much in the natural world, this shows to us somehow, but in a more direct sense, in a more specific sense, that the, the ways of the natural world and the, the manifestations of uh, which is to be seen in the way that the natural world itself operates, in other words, the very system of natural law, that this specifically is somehow an indication of which has been ingrained and somehow imbued and placed in the natural world, and uh, which serves, therefore, as a sort of a key to understanding one aspect of the the way in which the natural world operates and the way in which it's been constructed, it's both its basic structure and the laws uh, governing its further activity, that uh, all this is a a direct revelation, and when I say direct, of course, I don't mean direct in the sense in which Taylor and Abu is direct, but I mean, it's a revelation not merely of Kveit Shemayim, but a revelation actually of the way in which the Rabbeinu Shalom has set up the Bria, and therefore it is a certain Rotsen Akadman, a certain primal or primeval will, which has been embedded within it, and this is something which serves for us um, as direction. In other words, it's a way we see, this is apparently the way the Rabbeinu Shalom has constructed the world, this is a facet that been given to us an aspect of his will who's, which has been revealed to us and from it we can therefore infer or learn what uh, what is and the Ram particularly in Meir Ruchim placed great stress uh, on this aspect on, on the Isgalus which there is within the actual world as it's revealed within it so this sort of Revelation, which is to be found within nature, uh, is actually twofold. First of all, simply that the fact that Lebenshalm has been iskala, his existence has been revealed to us by the natural world, and in this sense, it's merely one of the very traditional uh, you know, arguments that, uh, you know, the various uh, theistic arguments that have been advanced historically. So, this is the so called uh, the argument of the first cause, in a sense. In other words, since you see that a world exists, apparently it must have had a, a maker, and this reveals somehow the existence of the Ben But, uh, if you want to go a step further, not only the existence, but also the majesty of the glory. But it goes beyond this to the so-called arguments from design. In other words, the... But again, even more, the arguments from design suggests that the fact that the world has been constructed in a way which is beyond human comprehension and its, its complexity and 
the way in which it's, uh, it was done, it's something which we couldn't conceive a person was doing, so this somehow testifies to a supernatural force. But even going beyond this, and beyond the, this argument from design, going on to the conception of a will which is directly revealed in nature. I mean, the way in which the natural world is set up, that this somehow indicates for us what is the Ratzenu Shlakarish Baruch who has revealed within the natural world. And this is, the Ram interprets, this is more or less what, what Meshach Rabbeinu was, was shown when, when Meshach Rabbeinu asked that uh, he wanted to know in Kisisa. He wanted to know how well, what are the Rebbein Shalom's ways? So, he was told that this is impossible, so instead, what, what can he see? So, the Rebbein told him he should stand in Ikras Hatsur, and Varisa is Achorah Yufane Leiro. So, the Rebbein says this is exactly what, what Meish Rabbeinu was told, that to have a direct revelation of Drocha, of Shlach of the existence of Meish this is something which couldn't be granted to Meish. But the, you could see it as a so to speak, the way it's revealed, not in its essence, but Musa Shlakarish Baruch, but revealed through his handiwork through the creation. So this is one Hisgalos, in the natural world. And this, I mean, uh, just to be, uh, simply to be candid about it, I mean, this is not necessarily a strictly, I mean, an idea which has strictly been limited uh, to us, and this is an idea which has been taken over in many respects by the non Jewish, particularly the Christian world as well, at least not in many recent times, but I mean, earlier. Uh, in earlier periods, precisely because it is, it is to be found, uh, uh, it is to be found in Tanakh. I mean, in some of the, the well-known medieval uh, Christian thinkers uh, operate with this idea, and uh, later on, you particularly get a, lot, a special emphasis upon this uh, in the 17th century, when there were many, uh, many of the early leaders of the, of the scientific revolution. Many of them were men who were themselves very deeply religious and very much perturbed, of course, with some of the problems concerning the relations between science and religion. And uh, one of the rationales they, that they employ for the study of science at a time when the Roman religious bent uh, gave them certain hesitancy or certain doubts about its study was this very fact that, the contrary, the study of science itself is a way of approaching the Benishleim, of getting to, to understand him and so on. For instance, just to mention one example, Boyle, I suppose you know from Boyle's Law, but uh, uh, Boyle was a man who very, very deeply religious, and who wrote, wrote a great deal on this particular topic of the way in which the natural world serves somehow to give us an insight into certain religious uh, revealed uh, realities. But in any event, anyway, this is whether or not this idea has been prevalent in the, in the natural world, but uh, in the non-Jewish world, it is, it is a very strongly Jewish idea, as I mentioned, because it is so deeply ingrained uh, in Tanakh. Secondly, we have a similar hisgalus, which is not direct, uh, but also somehow to be inferred from events, but from events uh, not to be found in the, in the natural world and in its underlying structure, uh, but in the course of events as they affect human society, namely the sort of hisgalus which you have in history. And uh, simply that within the historical process we see certain underlying tendencies, certain drives, uh, certain modes, and uh, of course it's Yad Hashem, that's by Lakim, and uh, we see here a certain Hizgalus, the way the Hashgacha conducts the world, and from this we again are enabled somehow to see the Yad Hashem and to infer again, not merely that the Benishim is there and is running things, but somehow the how, I mean specifically what the Tzernish Lakarish Baruch is. And again this is based I'm Sukim as well, in one, one which Rashi quotes very early in the very first part of the Torah, Kech Ma'as Hadigi La'am Elosla Nachlas Goyim, 
Rashi interprets a medalish that somehow it's to serve as an explanation as to why Knesset Yisrael could take over Eretz Yisrael later. But uh, if you take simply the Pasha of the Pasik, it means simply Kech Masav Higi Amoy in order to. This is a Haggadah, some testimony uh, how as to how the, the world is, uh, by looking at the, at, uh, at the course of, of history, as to how the world is operated, and apparently how the Banishra wants that it should be operated. And to come back to the part that I mentioned earlier, the Pelak of Shemaim Esafim Kavayit Kael, you have a little bit later, it begins with Shemaim Esafim Kavayit Kael, with Shemaim Esafim Kavayit Kael, with reference to, uh, with reference to the natural world, and, but then it goes on to what very likely can be understood as referring not so much to nature as to history, uh, the events as they move in time, and of course time is the medium of history, that uh, these are to be, uh, these are to be seen as, somehow telling us something with reference to the Bani Shalom as well. Just one now, uh, when I'm speaking of this sort of dual revelation, that which is to be found in nature, that which is to be found in history, uh, I'm not speaking of what might be seen as supernatural or in a sense super-historical events. In other words, I'm not speaking at this point of events which, are, which run counter to what we take to be the ordinary course of nature of history of it, sort of these gallows which is to be found in Ness, for instance, uh, the nature of a miracle, which by its very nature, well, ordinarily, of course, was very opinions about this, but uh, which involves somehow a deviation or a departure, let us say, uh, from natural law, or of events which within the realm of human history also involve a certain departure in the sense that uh, they, they are not just the ordinary course of events as they seem to come forth out of human hands, but somehow guided by, by the Ashgoche, but events which seem somehow to be a special uh, direct intervention, so to speak, on the part of the Rebbein Uh That is a different Yedah. Yedah of Nes, it's a different dimension, you see, of, uh, of Yad Hashem as it's seen in nature and it's seen in history. The Ramban particularly, in the end of Bay, I believe, emphasizes that there is a certain Nes, uh, a Nes TV. I mean, the, the very existence of the natural world itself and its continued dependence upon the Ben Shalem is itself a, a nest in a sense. What does the word nest mean? The word nest really means a sign or a banner, uh, something which testifies, which, which signifies, which demonstrates. And the mere existence of the natural world, the mere ordinary processes of history uh, testify in a sense to the, uh, to the Ben Shalem. Then there is a second dimension of, of nest, of some sort of direct intervention, interference with what might be seen as the ordinary causal process of nature or of history, uh, this is a, a second dimension. Now, I've spoken of these two as being a aspect of, of revelation, and uh, not only of somehow giving us a, a general testimony to the, to the existence of the Rebbein Shleilam and his grandeur, his majesty, but of giving us some sort of clues uh, as to how the Ashgoche conducts the historical process and how the Ashgoche has set up the natural world. Now, of course, uh, these are I mean, the ways of nature, the ways of history. Uh, these are very clouded. I mean, it's not, it's not something which is very readily visible. It's not something which is very direct. It isn't a revelation which speaks in very specific or in very concrete terms. It's, uh, it's something which, which, or from which, rather, 
uh, one can infer. And probably more likely than not, uh, whether one will infer at all, let alone what one will infer, uh, depends in most cases on uh, factors which are to be seen out, which are independent of the galus which exist within nature and history. In other words, uh, the extent to which one will find any sort of galus in nature and in history, and whether one will find it at all, depends very likely on other factors, in other words, on one's general religious bent, and on the extent to which one's religious experience has been cultivated generally. And just to take one example, hey, well, who is the great, uh, great example of someone who discovered the Ben Shleilam through the through the natural world. Avraham. Yeah. I mean, the Medrash uh, describes it particularly in very dramatic fashion. Ram in the first part of Hilchas Avodas Kachovim. Ram speaks how Avraham Avinu was roaming through the world and how initially, as Ram says, that initially Avraham Avinu was caught up by the various social currents of his time and was completely submerged in the worship of Avodas Zavah. Grew up in Tanakhtom, so where should he see otherwise? But uh, how gradually he emancipated himself and he began to ponder the matter and he came to uh, he came to the to a realization of the existence of the Ben Shleilam and insight and uh, finally uh, the establishment of a certain direct contact. But of course, uh, what Avram saw, everyone else also could have seen. I mean, Tarek also could see the sunrise and sunset and and so on. So apparently, what did Avram see, which Tarek? couldn't have seen, uh, or rather not what she couldn't have seen, but what she didn't see, because apparently there was something within Avraham's own inner experience which drove him to see within the natural world that which Tarach somehow didn't see, or that which Choron and uh, that which Nocher and the others uh, did not see. And the same is true with reference to history. Uh, of course, we see Yad Hashem, we see Ashkoch in history, but... It's rather doubtful, and particularly today, that a person would initially derive his religious stimulus from this. And uh, most likely, uh, I think one should assume, this, uh, an Jewish thinker once said it, I think it's a very correct idea, I think uh, Newman once stated that he sees design in nature. I mean, of course it's there and you see it, but he said he sees design in nature because he believes in God, not that he believes in God because he sees design in nature. In other words, and this is particularly true, I think, of, uh, of modern times, uh, medieval thinkers were not, uh, didn't quite, very often didn't quite see it in this light, because, of course, the whole medieval world was one which was very much suffused with religious values and an acceptance of fundamental religious truth, so that the whole framework was one within which the basic uh, religious uh, insights were more or less accepted, and then it was a question of somehow finding their basis. So it wasn't as if one began from a neutral position, so to speak, and then was looking out to see whether or not he could find a basis for religious values, religious tradition. But one already began with that, and it was a question then of reading it back, finding arguments for it. So within that context, uh, arguments such as those first cause, arguments in design, all of these had a strong appeal and a certain measure of validity. Of course, within the in, in modern times, I mean, the last two centuries, for instance, or last three centuries in a sense, uh, in which gradually the acceptance of religious truth has become very much eroded, and gradually that 
people who have come to wrestle with, with religious problems have done so on entirely different planes. There wasn't a question of uh, how to interpret, but uh, how to accept, but simply whether to accept. Increasingly, the battleground has tended to shift to other ground. Uh, the argument uh, from nature, the argument from history, the, I mean, conceived as arguments, these have become much weaker. But they become weaker only conceived as arguments. In other words, uh, if one w- wants to think of them in terms of proofs, of ways somehow of convincing a person who is not a maimin, of course, these are, have lost a great deal of, uh, of their force, as gradually, first of all, the conception of nature itself uh, has shifted, and the, the old picture of very beneficent, obviously beneficent nature uh, has given way to many of pictures later on, I mean, the sort of thing which, for instance, Hardy's novels are familiarized, and the conception of nature as being at best neutral, if not, in a sense, almost cruel. Uh, when that sort of conception has become possible, and in many circles, of course, prevalent, then, of course, the whole argument has lost a great deal of its force. Now, of course, this picture is one which, Chassel Shalom, we do not accept. I mean, the sort of image of the natural world that is projected, let us say, by uh, by Hardy or by Aldous Huxley and many others who've, uh, who've written in this vein is one which, Chassel Shalom, uh, we could not accept. I mean, to us, Hashemayim Amisapim Kveit Kael, and it is a revelation of Haidva Hadar and which is Mole Rachmim, which has been seen with, uh, revealed within nature and similarly within history. Notwithstanding, this is not to say that there are not very basic problems, I mean, uh, with reference to both the arena of nature and the uh, arena of history. I mean, the problem of evil and all its manifestations remains a very real problem. I'm not, uh, by no means, minimize it. I mean, the Vim wrestled with it, Chassal wrestled with it, and it's a problem which deserves uh, independent consideration. But for us, whatever we, whatever we do with that particular problem, but for us, nature and history remain revelations, although, as I say, as proofs, as arguments, uh, they, of course, have lost a great deal of, uh, of their appeal. But where they retain their force is where a third medium of Galus, of revelation, is, uh, is present, and this is simply the direct... Uh, very personal and more inner rather than outer directed Hisgalus uh, exists, uh, namely simply that of personal religious experience. Uh, in other words, simply, where it's more or less, uh, you might say, emotional, although it's both emotional and intellectual, but uh, simply where a person in his own inner experience, feels that somehow he's, he's in contact with, with the Rebbein that he has found him, that he's sought him, that he's in need of him, and where he's in need of him, he, he ultimately finds him. And with regard to this, we have, we have actually have Tochek. So what is the Mitzia? How does one find? Where there is this quest? Not that it's imposed from without. It's not that I confront the natural world, I confront historical reality, and then I find revealed before me, irresistibly, the existence of the Ben Shlelem and an insight into his ways. No, that's where there is a quest, and where, where there is a search, and where... I feel an, an inner drive, an inner urge, and uh, I'm led by this ultimately to experience uh, the existence of the Ben Shalom and to experience somehow a certain link and a certain kinship that I somehow establish contact with him. Uh, then this Kisidr Shenu leads to Matzasa, Bechol Avav, Bechol Nafshech. The Mitzi is Bechol Levav, Bechol Nefesh. It's not something which is just hits, which just hits me in the face. I mean, that doesn't require Bechol Avav, Bechol Nafshech, it doesn't require Mitzi, it doesn't require a quest, doesn't require a search, certainly not a drisha, but this is a third medium. 
And, of course, it's one which, particularly for us, has assumed much greater importance because it serves as a key more and more to the other, some of the other avenues. I've mentioned, for those who, who have felt this inner religious experience, uh, then the, there is a tremendous, I mean, even today, there remains a tremendous scouts within the world of nature, within the world of, of history. And, uh, in a sense, today, this galus to be found in nature is one which is greater than was available to uh, to any of our of our ancestors uh, simply because uh, as modern science progresses more and more and as it comes to discover more and more and seemingly to unlock so to speak some of the secrets of the universe uh, the, the godless which is reflected within it is becomes greater and greater and on the other hand the mystery of it becomes greater and greater. I mean, there was a time, you know, during the 19th century particularly, when many scientists thought that somehow they had completely unlocked the secrets of the universe, that the lines had been completely laid down, and uh, that they understood. So, while on the one hand, perhaps, to at that time, to people who studied nature and were taken up completely with the study of science, the, the natural world might have revealed a certain majesty, but it didn't seem to communicate to them a certain mystery. Uh, that they, they, they felt was almost completely solved. I mean, as recently as, uh, oh, the late 19th century, about 1885 or so, uh, there was a very prevalent feeling that uh, more or less the basic structure of the natural world and the basic nature of reality, uh, that all this was understood. It was just a question of filling in the gaps somehow, filling in the details. But, of course, today, this notion has been very much abandoned, and the more scientists learn, the less generally they feel that they know about the essential reality. I don't mean that they know less about the way in which things work. I mean, they discover more and more about more or less the, the mechanics, so to speak, the, the relation be- between various objects, and, uh, what the relation of one aspect is to another aspect, but what the intrinsic nature of reality is, and even some of the underlying laws governing it, this is something which now they feel is more and more elusive. And it's not only today, of course, I mean, become much more pronounced in the last generation, but actually, the, the end of the 19th century, you get this sort of uh, change. Whitehead, for instance, in his dialogue, repeats time and again, and Whitehead was, you know, not only an outstanding metaphysician, but he was a very leading scientist, one of the men who laid the foundations of 20th century mathematics, together with Richard Russell. Uh, and Whitehead describes the way, he says, he remembers when he was a student, Whitehead was born in 1861, so about 1885, he would have been, let us say, a graduate student. Uh, he described how at that time it, it was felt that more or less uh, everything that needed to be known in terms of basic underlying truths about the natural world, that this was known. I mean, the discoveries of Faraday, Clerk Maxwell, all of these that have already been in May, and referring particularly to physics, which of course dominated 20th century uh, scientific thought, that all of this had, was more or less known, and uh, for the rest, uh, it was just a question of working out the problem. I mean, filling in the terrain, but that the basic geography is somewhat familiar. And uh, but then he writes that by 1900, he uh, every major principle which had been advanced by 1900, by 1905, of course, the special theory of special relativity was advanced in 1905. Uh, that by then, uh, all of the basic principles had somehow been overturned, and that subsequently, the, the sense of certitude with regard to scientific findings. Uh, this is something which eluded him for the rest of his life. I mean, he lived a long time afterwards, 1947, but he never again had a sense that 
somehow either we had or even could penetrate to the ultimate reality of the natural world. And you know, last night there was a little uh, a little limerick that someone once wrote with regard to this. You know, Newton's gray. I mean, Newton was a man who really set up the you know the whole conception of the whole classical conception. Uh, I mean, the conception of classical science. I mean, of the of nature and on. Uh, on Newton's grave, uh, Pope wrote a little couplet which was put on, placed on Newton's grave that, uh, uh, to the effect that nature and nature laws lay hid in night, God said let Newton be and all was light. And uh, <laughs> a, a, a pundit in the, I think it was in the early 20s, I don't know exactly when, uh, he added another, another two lines that the, the devil shouting ho would not let it be, he said let, let Einstein be and always night again. <laughs> so, but right, anyway, I mean, it's not, of course, not all Einstein's doing, but um, uh, that, but this certainly, I mean, uh, all those of you who studied, uh, you know, some are studying uh, science somewhat, uh, are aware of this, that actually what, in our day, more and more, what, what's happened is that uh, the sense of mystery is anything, if anything, has simply deepened, so that uh, this sort of galus, once, a person fundamentally has a has a religious experience, a religious basis, becomes, if anything, more uh, meaningful. But very likely, it requires this sort of prior religious vision and religious insight to be gained, perhaps today, more through inner uh, experience than through the aesthetic experience, let us say, of contemplating the natural world. Uh, that uh, these other types of galus of nature and history have to be attained. Now. Uh, I've just spoken here of the third uh, manner of religious experience, and of course this has many manifestations. I mean, I'm not, uh, I'm not going to go into this right now. Uh, but at its highest, I mean, the, the apex of religious experience, and it's actually an apex which one cannot reach entirely on one's own, but one has to strive to attain, and even then it requires a, something which is beyond one's ability to grasp in order to attain it. Uh, the highest madrege which one can attain and through the medium of religious experience is one which should perhaps be described independently as a fourth medium, a fourth vehicle of Isgalus, and this is the Madrega of Nevoer. Now, Nevoer should not be thought of um, as uh, being simply a, uh, an instance where a person just becomes a receptacle, you see, a vehicle someone has given to him, he's a messenger boy to deliver something to the rest of the, to the, rest of the world. Uh, there are instances when uh, sometimes where something simply needs to be communicated where perhaps uh, there is a nevoa perhaps of that type I say perhaps Malden discussed it at one point he, some, uh, he was inclined to assume that somehow it is possible to conceive of this type of nevoa but generally speaking where you have nevoa the Bnei Hanvim of which uh, the Pasuk and Shmuel speaks nevoa generally is something which is not merely a errand, uh, I mean a messenger service so to speak, when one becomes an errand boy it's the highest possible madrega that a person can attain in, through the fullest and richest development of his own religious experience and as I've said, it's not something which is necessarily attained by one who reaches this madrega. it's not that a person just climbs and climbs and climbs and then finally he reaches the madrega of a novi and he's given a certain special revelation as distinct from the general Isgalus, which everyone has been granted. It's quite conceivable that a person should reach the highest madrega and should never attain Nevoah, because when all is said and done, Nevoah is an act of, of Rotzen, the part of the Rebbein Shleilam, that uh, 
It's an act of chayin, an act of grace. I mean, it has to be given to someone. And it's quite conceivable that a person should undergo all the rigors of attaining to the final goal of being rawi for nevuah, of being mukhshar for nevuah. And it is a most arduous process, and the Ram describes it partly in Tagzayin Chesed Atera, but particularly in Me'ar The Ram considers the Me'ar to be a sefer which is primarily concerned somehow with nevuah, with his galus, the whole concept of, of revelation. And the Ram, particularly in the second Sefer of Meir Nebuchim, the last 10 or 15 Prakim, where he classifies and categorizes all the different types of, uh, of Nebuah, the Ram describes the, the rigorous training and the ardors and the, the tortuous path that one needs to follow in order to attain the Madrig of Nebuah. And this is the Ram, this is what the Bnei Anvim were. These are people who were seeking Nebuah and who were developing themselves as far as they could in order to be rowing, to be Mukhshu, to attain it. But nevertheless, but not Navi. They are roi, they want, and they qualify. But nevertheless, uh, when all is said and done, uh, when a person is roi, the Rebbein may grant him the vuer, or may not, uh, depending on uh, factors which are beyond our comprehension. But, uh, but, uh, but the remains nevertheless a certain specialty scholar. So it's the highest madregi of religious experience, but it's more than that. Because it requires that a specialist galus on the part of the Rebbe And when we speak of Nevoah as galus, I want you to understand there really are two things involved. And I've spoken of it until now in one sense, but we should distinguish a second sense from it. Nevoah is galus, first of all, to the person to whom it is granted. And to him, it is a special type of galus, a special type of revelation, which he attains partly by dint of his own effort and partly by dint of the fact that there's been an act of of Hanoisi on the part of the Rebbeinu Shleimah. But then, secondarily, the content of Nevoah, distinct from the experience, I've spoken so far of the experience of Nevoah, which becomes a moment at which I have, first of all, a certain insight, a certain vision, but it's not only an act of vision that I see into, but also that something is revealed to me, a certain special message somehow is granted to me. But then, secondarily, there is not only the experience of Nevoah, there is also the content of Nevoah, which then becomes a revelation, a galus, for others who have not had this experience. Because while the Navi is not simply someone who is just given a telegram, a message to transmit, but once he attains the Madrig of Nevoah, and if the moment needs it, and if there is Rotzen, Rabbein Shalom, Kaviachal, to grant it, then what he's given, the, the message or the vision which is granted to him, then becomes something to be transmitted to someone else, and it's something which he not only uh, can but must transmit. I mean, Novi Kavish is the Vuasoi, is Gachayv Misa, so So then for others, his Nevoa becomes not an immediate and a direct experience of what's for him, but it becomes secondarily a sort of message. There's a certain content which has been transmitted through him which is then granted to everyone else, and which also is a form of Yisgalus, which is more direct in a sense, and more special than the sort of Yisgalus which you have in nature and in history, but yet it's to be distinguished from the Yisgalus which was given to the Novi, which was a more purely experiential one. For everyone else, it becomes already, very often, perhaps a more intellectual type of experience, where uh, they simply are given something, a certain content, they are to absorb it, and to follow it, and to be guided by it, but, of course, you cannot say that theirs has been the same type of experience of Nevoah as was that of the Navi himself. And then finally, 
so we have then a sort of Hisgalus in nature and in history and a religious experience, and then culminating finally in Nevoah, and within Nevoah distinguishing two types of Hisgalus, that which is given to the Navi himself, and that which he then transmits as a cliché to someone else. And then over and above all of these, there is the special Hisgalus of Teh. Teh is a Hisgalus which is separate and independent and unique, and to be distinguished from all of the, all of the others. In what respect it's to be distinguished, we'll see later. The Ramban partly talks about this, and this is a subject which requires uh, to discuss much more fully. But for the moment, I just want you to have a clear notion that it is different. I mean, uh, Teda is not simply Nevoah's nation. Of course, Meshra Ben, he was a Navi also. And as a Navi, he was the Adoina Nevim, the Avia Nevim, and distinguished from all other Nevi'im in many respects, the Chazal describe it, that some of Meshach Rabbeinu's Nevu'ah was Bas Pakla with some sort of prism which was irradiated, and everyone else's was in his Pakla Yashayinu Me'ilah, with some, a more clouded vision, seen somehow darkly through a glass. But Meshach's Nevu'ah was one which was Bas Pakla So Meshach certainly was a Navi, but actually what Meshach's Nevu'ah was is not the content of Salem. I mean, Meshach must have seen Nevu'ahs and visions which were lain erech, greater than anything we find in the Vies. We saw Kaddish, 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 Ve'eres Hashem Yeshua al-Kisir Ram Anissa v'shulam v'leim esaheichal al-Israfi meimim v'ma'allai v'karazel zev yama Kaddish, Kaddish, Kaddish or similarly the sort of nevuahs and visions that were seen by by Yecheskel, Maisim HaKover, Me'alakirach HaNoira and so on so Meish Rabbeinu was the Avi HaNevim like Kombi Yisrael k'Noviyayid, Noviyayid k'Meisha you must have seen much more and Deeper and further, but in the you don't find this God. I mean, where is the Veiras Hashem? You don't have this. This is not the content of Tera. Meshes Nevuah wasn't Nevuah. It wasn't written. It wasn't preserved. Not all Nevuah is preserved. On the contrary, Chazal say that the only Nevuah which is preserved was Nevuah which was somehow necessary Ladeiras, which needed to be transmitted for as a matter of permanent record. As I mentioned earlier, Nevuah has two aspects. Nevuah is first of all an immediate experience of the Navi. And these experiences were many. There were many Nevi'im and B'nai Nevi'im. And, but then Nevu'ah also, secondarily, has a certain content, a certain message, which needs to be delivered to others. And the only Nevu'ah which is preserved L'dayrais is only Nevu'ah which had to be transmitted. Nevu'ah which Bechlal was not a message to be given over, certainly didn't need to be written down. Not only this, Nevu'ah which needed to be transmitted, but only had a certain local significance and a temporal significance, only for that particular time and that particular place, also was not recorded because it could be transmitted by the Navi. The only thing which was recorded was only that which was necessary which had a later relevance and therefore you needed the message to be the message needed to be transmitted and who could do it? Only it could only be done if it was written uh, by Navi. So Mesha's Navu actually was was not recorded. We don't know what Mesha saw. Mesha must have seen but of this we don't know. We don't know anything. And Taylor, and even what is written in Taylor, there also is not to be seen as the Vuas Mesh. It's the Chefs of Taylor, and as such, it differs in its essential character from the Chefs of Nevuah. I mean, this Miguel Halacha, for instance, the Mechashinuk asks uh, why actually everyone who's Eva, any Yisrael, any Aveda, really should be Chayim Yisrael B'Dishamayim. Since the Gemara says, I read of Nishnek, or Eva, or Libre Novi, either Chayim Yisrael B'Dishamayim, someone refuses to listen to a Navi, and knowing that it's a Navi, refuses to listen to him. So every Aveir and the Taylor, anyone, whatever one is Aveir, 
this was the Bichas Chinuch asks. Yes, according to Tera, so the Rosh wants. Because obviously the Tera is not Nebuah, it's a different Cheft. Where in the differences lie, I'm not going to go into this now. In fact, because it is Tera, therefore it's not Nebuah. It's different. It's different. So we have, in other words, these distinct Galus, some which are very less direct, of course, the natural and the historical Galus are far less direct nature. That of religious experience is in a sense more direct in that it involves me personally, but it is not so specific, first of all. It is more a sense of my going out to seek and to search out the Rabbeinu Shleilam rather than so much a specific and a direct Hisgalus of Rabbeinu Shleilam to me. Nevoah is more or less the apex of my religious experience, and this is the uh, a more specific and a more direct Hisgalus. And again, here we should distinguish between the experience and the content of the Nevoah. And finally, there is Taylor, which is a unique and an independent Hiskalus, uh, and one which, for instance, is only limited to Knesset Yisrael and not to Umesailam, the Bua Shaykh to Umesailam also. I mean, there were Nevim among the Umesailam too, Taylor, Dafke, for Knesset Yisrael. I mean, there are many differences. Well, we'll see some that Ramban himself talks about, the very character, the very nature of, uh, of Taylor. Now, what is the Hiskalus of Taylor, and how should it? Served to us today. So I mentioned when we got to Nevoah that Nevoah is a multiple sort of Hisgalus. There's first of all the experience of Nevoah, and secondly, there is, as the cliche, the content of Nevoah, which is then transmitted to us. And if this is true of Nevoah, it is true also of Teir. Even though I said Teir is not Bechepse Nevoah, it's a different Chepse, but nevertheless, the, also there was a sort of Hisgalus of Maimon of Sinai, number one. And secondly, there was the content which was delivered at Maimed Sinai. Of course, we do not, Chasrishalim, take the view of you know, some so-called more liberal thinkers that we should think of Revelation as being purely the experience of Sinai. I mean, just the experience without the content. Of course, we don't think so. You know, I mean, there are some who say that we should think of Yisgalus as just being the experience of, the religious experience which was felt at Maimed Sinai and not think of it in terms of a hard and fast, in terms of a concrete content which was transmitted. Either they say there was no content transmitted, or there was what they call a sort of progressive revelation, just a beginning, but then something which is constantly in a state of a flux. Of course, we think of the encounter at Maimon al-Sinai as being one which, from which we came away with very specific content. But if this is the case, we do not deny, on the other hand, the significance and the importance of Maimon al-Sinai as a historical encounter and as a historical national experience conceived simply as an experience, quite apart from the mitzvahs which were delivered, quite apart from the tailor which was given, simply the Maimon al-Sinai itself as an experience, as an encounter between Knesset Yisrael and the Rebbe Nishraelam, that this in itself has significance. And we say it's very specifically and no uncertain terms in the Haggadah. Even Kervadur al-Sinai, What's the Dayenu? We would have come to Arsina and come away without a Tayra. We would have made big Achonis. We would have come to Arsina and Shleshis Yomim and Shleshis Leilis and everything and all the action. Then we'd come and we'd wait and nothing would be delivered and we'd go away and we'd be frustrated. So what would have been the Greek? So apparently, because Maimon Arsina in itself would also be, would have been a tremendous, I mean, almost a traumatic experience. The whole is simply the act of Yisgalus, what was seen at Maimon Al-Sinai in terms of Mir Gilu Shechine. 
Not in terms of Gilui Teira, of Mesira Sateira, of Mesira Saluchais, of Mesira Samitres, of anything. But simply, Gilui Shechina, this in itself would have been a tremendous experience had we not received the Teira. And the fact that we did receive a Teira doesn't mean that it's any less of a of an experience. That it was any less of an experience. So it was certainly, I mean, this mere encounter in itself divorced entirely, even from what was received, was in itself a an incalculable event. And furthermore, it's not only a historical event in the sense that an event which took place at one time, at one point in history, but it's an event which we need constantly to be recreating. I mean, it is certainly an event which should be fixed in our minds historically. It's not just a sort of a vague notion, some sort of floating revelation which brewed somehow over human history. It's a specific event, time and place, and one which we are mitzvah to remember, and to remember as a historical event. The Ramban says, for instance, in Chumash and the Sefer Mitzvah, the Ramban says, a separate mitzvah, that there's a separate mitzvah to remember Maimed al-Sinai as a historical event. Not simply to think that somewhere and somehow that there was a revelation, but simply to fix it as an event. This is a posit. So what does the but not only to think of it as a concrete event, but also, what is the means that while on the one hand I fix it in time and place, and I think of it as a concrete historical event, but simultaneously I also seek to recreate it. And part of the Hiskalus which was given through Teirah and through Maimon Sinai is not only Hiskalus of the content of Teirah. Of course, this is part of the Hiskalus that we had at Maimon Sinai was the content with which we came away, and so on. But apart from this, the Maimir Sinai itself, the Gilushchina that was there, is something which, to the best of our abilities, we are enjoying with Mitzvah constantly to try to recreate. And this is part of the Mitzvah of Yishamalach, although means not only to inform it, to relive it with it, to recreate it for him. And uh, this is, it's like, yeah, even like I'm certain halachas, but even before getting to the halacha, for the Rashi Chumish quotes it. Uh, so, uh, we could interpret, these should be today, I mean, today you should think of them. However, Rashi says, and I believe, I think the Torah also bears that, it's not to interpret that they should be Hayyim Alavavecha, but to interpret it also as referring to the preceding. Those things which I command you today should be Allah And Rashi quotes the Srisha You shouldn't think of them as some sort of old and ancient and hoary edict. You should think of it as something of which you immediately deliver. And what does this mean? Not just you should think of it as fresh, it's new, I mean, it's modern, not just that this is the Mile. You should actually feel that you are now undergoing the experience of being mitzvah, the experience of receiving the teira and of actually having this sort of yilushchina. And where does actually we see actually the halacha? It's the halacha. Where actually do we see the halacha? 
that we have to try somehow to recreate the Maimon al I mean, how does one recreate it, really? How is it possible to recreate it? We recover it? What? No, I mean, not so much the same. What? No, I mean, constantly, all the time. It's something we do constantly. Why do you have to go so far with it? I mean, simply the Maimon of Tamutayda. Tamutayda itself is should be an act of a fresh Kabbalah, a fresh Kabbalah of, of Taylor. How do I know this? It's a Gemara. No, it's a Gemara. And actually, the Talmud should involve a new, a new Kabbalah Satel. The mice of learning, and we, you know, we never think of learning as just a purely intellectual act. And Talmud is a, should be a religious experience. And where do you see this, this halacha? I mean, the halacha, actually. Where is the halacha that Talmud Tehra does? No, Samson, we learned the Gemara. Where is actually a halacha which is based on what? Four because I said it's Gemara and Brachis. The Gemara says that Balikari are also in Talmud Tehra. It's also for Balikari to to learn Tehra. We don't pass like this, but the, the Gemara says initially that Balikari is also in Talmud Tehra. The Gemara says, how do you know? The Tanya, I daitem lovanecha v'liv nevanecha u'chasiv yoyim asher amadza l'ifnei Hashem alakecha b'chayrev z'mala halon. Just as Bishas Kabbalah Sateh, how was it? The Eimo, the Yiro, the Reses, the Zeya, and Balkari was apparently Mufki from this. Afkan, the Daitum of Nechel, the Neva Nechel, and the Maitha of Tamu Tehra, is the Eimo, the Yiro, the Reses, the Zeya. The Kanomru, the Zobi, the Mseroim, the Boyan Nidos, the Mutabam, the Christ, the Terra, the Mixuvim, the Lishres, the Mishnu, the Gemara, the Alochis, the Because they were not excluded. In Matantera, in Matantera, with Shleshis Yomim, Al Tikshuel Isha, only Balkari was excluded. Avo Balikari, you're not excluded. Because just as then the Sinai, Shleshis Yomim, Al Tikshuel Isha, the Balkari was also. So similarly, with regard to Tamutera, generally, the Balkari is also. Why? Because the experience of Tamutera should actually involve a recreation and a duplication, of course, to the extent that it's possible, of, of the act of Kabbalah Sateh. And this is why, really, someone mentioned before Birkis Because Birkis really, this is exactly the point, you see. Tamatera is not just someone who studies the way he studies anything. Uh, it has to be with an awareness of how he's doing it, and he's being a couple, the tale. The Gemara says in the Dorim, for instance, the Gemara says, They didn't make a bracha before they learned tale. What does it mean? Is it because they didn't uh, make a bracha, so the bias was hard? So, I don't know, talks about it in one place. But uh, what it means is simply that they learned Taylor attack. But they studied Taylor with detachment, with a lot of intellectual curiosity and something which is interesting, but without commitment and without an act of Kabbalah Sater. If there's no Kabbalah Sater, this is not Tamu It's not the way Max studies Egyptian law, so he studies also. he could study Tehra also with the same sort of disinterestedness and the same sort of dispassionate perusal. But Talmud Tehra means more than this. Talmud Tehra means we, don't, we pass in the Balkari's mutter for another reason, but not because we don't require There's another reason. But the underlying conception is certainly so. And you see it in other areas, the Halochim. I mean, Tamutera here is simply with regard to Tamutera of a Yochid. 
But where is the Tamutel of Rabim? Where is the Tamutel of Rabim? Where is the Tamutel of Rabim? What? Kri Satel. Kri Satel is So, what is Kri So, and where is the. Alright, first of all, where is the Kri Satel of the Raisis? Where is the Kri Satel of the Raisis? Hakel, yes. So, the Ram describes Hakel. Robbins quoted this. The Ram describes Hakel. So, the Ram describes how everyone should listen to that, to the Kriya, the archetype. The Gerim, first Ram says how they should do it. The Gerim should be makirin chayovin, lahochin libom, ulahakshiv oznom, lishmoya, beema, beyira, begila, biraada. And the Ram adds five words, four words. Kiyayim shenitna babisim. In Kabbalah says that in Kriya Satera, when they listen, they have to listen again. I'm using terms similar to what you have in the Gemara in Brachis. The sort of experience that they should feel is Kiyem Shinikma by the Sinai, the Emo, the Yira, Dram has not the rest of the but the Gila Birata. The same sort of unique experience that was undergone in Sinai. And this is again not only to Kriya Satera, the Raisa, and Hakel. There are certain specific halachas, there are certain specific halachas in the way we are naked in Kriya Satera, which are based on this conception. For instance, the Yerushalmi Megillah, Yerushalmi says, a couple of halachas mentioned. Yeah, what's Samech? No, with regard to what? Yeah, correct. Yeah, correct. With regard to Bishat Shri if a person can either sit or, or lean, uh, or, or whether he has to stand upright. The Yerushalmi says, He went into a shul. So he saw He saw a person who was being metalgim. You know, there's one like they used to have not only kriyasatera but tirgum. They used to read and then they used to interpret. They used to interpret it. because basically the kriya was more terush bechsav. The tirgum was very an aspect of terush balpeh. So they used to read to be metalgim. So he saw this fellow was leaning very comfortably while. Um, while he was uh, the Metalgim. It's also to be Nishan, to be Nismar. Why? And again, another incident the Oshami mentioned. Rabbi Chagai, Rabbi He saw a person was standing and being Metalgim, and no one was standing next to him. They are just all by himself. Just as there was a middleman involved in the Nasina, in other words, Meish Rabbeinu, there should also be someone else present at the moment, at the moment of Tirk. And who the Silsu is is problematic. I don't want to get involved in that. But, yeah, this is why, you know, we are Nizo to have people standing around the Zabimah. Well, what do you need other people? Just should be the Valkyrie and the, and the one who gets the Ali. So why, why the others? Because of this, you will show so you see again this underlying conception of Talmutera, in particular Talmutera Barabim, as being a new a new Maisef Kabbalah. So we have actually in the sort of these galus that we have in Tera, so these galus partly similar to the content of Tera, and secondly, a these galus of the experience of Kabbalah Satan, something that we should be reliving and recreating in our own experience. There is thirdly, perhaps another type of iskalus, which I just want to mention now, I'll discuss it more fully later, 
I mentioned before that uh, one of the elements, one of the m- modes, the media of Galus was that of one's inner religious experience. So how does one have this experience? Right, so obviously it's a complex problem how one stimulates and develop religious experience. But one of the media, this is something which we've always uh, felt rather strongly, uh, one of the media is one which superficially would appear to be perhaps ill-suited for it, but which traditionally and historically we've always employed as one of the major media, actually, or one of the major vehicles of religious experience. And this is simply Tamutea. The massive of Tamutea is. And partly because Direct because of the content of Tamutea, simply the medium, the, the way in which it has given us a way of somehow learning, uh, getting to understand but partly also because it's one of the avenues, whether today is, so to speak, through which we can somehow establish contact with the Rebbe As Eidach, how can we come to know the Rebbe I mean, how can one even try to grasp, to comprehend, to understand the Rebbe It's beyond human ken, so how is it possible? So, one of the media is actually, just as I mentioned before, through an understanding that one somehow establishes contact with the Rebbe through the natural world, through the perception and the study of the natural world, so similarly to the study of Teh. Because here is some, somehow a way of being tafed, somehow of grasping, uh, being able to somehow see a reflection, as it were, uh, of the Rebbe This is something which uh, both the Tanya on the one hand uh, particularly elaborates on this in the early Parkim and of course the great counterpart of Chaim Velazhinov and the Nefshah Chaim on the other hand uh, agree and this conception of Tamutera serving as a vehicle of uh, a, religi- a religious experience what the nature of this is and how this should be done is something which as I say I should discuss separately but the, the conception is one that should be kept in mind now it's simply that here is a way somehow of grasping, as it were, onto the Ben of establishing contact with him, not with him, because it's impossible, but how? Through the Vayera Hashem al What was Vayera Hashem al Sinai? Through Matan Taylor. And now, how, what is our present approach? Alright, we try to recreate the experience, but how? Also through Talmud Taylor. And here is some way, uh, some medium we have for establishing some sort of contact, as it were. Uh, with Rabbi Nishleilim and with Ratzayin Shal HaKadosh Baruch Alright, okay. Alright, this is all by way of preface. Now let us see what the... Some of this I mentioned particularly because Ramban touches on some of this in the Hakdame. And uh, particularly later on the difference between Tehra and Nevoa, we'll see, he takes up very directly. But uh, let us see now what the... Ramban himself has said. Ramban doesn't begin so much with the problems that I've touched on. He begins more with some of the historical problems. Alright. Alright, okay, so the same. The Ramban has by the way, to every safer in Chumash. Uh, I mentioned to you that Ramban was very much uh, interested, I mean, Ramban's approach to Chumash was not only to take a, uh, you know, to try to interpret specific psukim, but to see broad context, hold parashis and hold svarim. And the Ramban, for instance, I just didn't give you one example of this. You know, the Gemara says, in Muktu Muchabatayim. That sometimes the parsha which is placed in one point really has was said earlier and has referenced earlier. Now man says yes, but only where there was a special reason for it. But generally there is muktu mukhbatera, and sequence is very relevant. 
The Ramban tries to develop this theme constantly, particularly if you look at Sefer Dvarim. He works very, very closely. Not only there, first you take a look at the Ramban at the beginning of Bahá'u. The first Ramban in Bahá'u takes you all the way back to describing the sequence from Mount Taylor down to Bahá'u, the whole sequence of Chumash, how it goes, and so on. So the Ramban always tries to take a broader view, somebody to grasp Chumash as a whole. And uh, he has Akdomas, therefore, to each Sefer. But of course, the one to Breshis, in a sense, is more telling, because it's, in a sense, Akdomas, not the Sefer Breshis, but uh, it's the Terezo. All right, no, what does it say? Meish Rabbeinu. Meish Rabbeinu, Klesav HaSefer HaDeh Breshis. Ima Torah Kulo, Mitiv Shela Kodesh Baruch Hu. Ba'akorov, Shekosvo Bahar Sinai. Shekosvo, yes. Shekosvo Bahar Sinai. Kishom Nemarlo, Alei Elai Hohoro, Ve'yeshom, Ve'etnolacho Etalim. Ve'etnolacho. And this is Ve'etnolacho Etalim. Yeah, Rabbi Hippoch. There's a big difference. You should be careful. Ve'etno lecho eslucha. Ve'etno lecho eslucha to even v'hatorah v'hamitzvah asher kotzav kilo haruzah. Kilo kotzav even yichlo haluchot. V'hamitzvah klomar aterot hadibros. Yes, lucha is even. He says it first. That's how hadibros. V'hamitzvah refers. Mitzvah hamitzvah kula. Ase velosa. Yeah. Imkain v'hatorah. Imkain v'hatorah yichlo hatikurim mitchilat bereishit. Yeah. Where, where is this Talmud, you know? Where, is the, where is the Ramban, where is the Ramban's point of departure here? This, the Memred, you know, I mean, I mean, the comment on this Memred, this, on this Pasik, is the, the Gemara that somehow takes, the, takes this up, you know? What? What does the Gemara say? <laughs> You're like, you're like a Chevelle, and I said, what does the Gemara say? <laughs> no, the Ramban does not interpret it this way. All right, the Gemara. You should look up the Gemara. Otherwise, the Gemara is in Brachas. I have a lot of money. The Gemara is in Brachas. I have a lot of money. I have a lot of money. I have a lot of money. So this is the, the Gemara, the Gemara in Brachis. Yeah. So what does it mean, though? This is what Raman says. But then the Gemara says, Torah is a Mikra, Zumishna. So what does it mean, Mikra and Mishnah? So Rashi says the mikra chumash shemitzvah likrei spatayra. Rashi very strange. Rashi says how many kriyas teres midraisa shemitzvah likrei spatayra. So Rashi means kriyas teres midraisa to read in the teres. But uh, when we say kriyas teres, the rabbanim we mean to read particularly on Shabbos and Mondays. But the one should study teres should be chesav. It's certainly mitzvah midraisa. Shemitzvah likrei spatayra zu mishnah sheis asku b'mishnah. So apparently according to Rashi, what is the difference between mikra? And Mishnah, then Gemara, he says, Svaras Tameh Hamishnayesh, Yimeni Yetzeh Heroyah. So Mishnah, so Mikra apparently is what? As Rashi interprets. Teira, the Teira the Mikra means what? Teira Shebechsav, right? And the Mitzvah of Mishnah is apparently Teira Shebechsav. Apparently. A Mishnah and Gemara, Mishnah Kasafti, and the whole combination is apparently Teira, Teira Shebechsav. Teira Shebechsav. Who else dealt with this memory? Besides the Gemara? Anyone know? I mean, he also began with this memory. Anyone know? I mean, he also began another sefer also by his reference to this. To this. 
the Ramban apparently understood no. What the mitzvah refers to what? What does mitzvah refer to? Yeah, well, mitzvah, the Ramban here, you, of course, one could interpret the mitzvah means the number, but um, the Ramban may not mean the number here, uh, the number of the mitzvahs. In other words, the number of the mitzvahs in the sense that the number of Tayyak. As a matter of fact, the Ramban in the Akdomah, the Akdomah, in the beginning of the Sefer HaMitzvah, the Ramban in the Supergod, whether the whether the mean of Tayag is everyone agrees to it or not, the Ramban comes super about it. The Ramban probably means simply, Ramitzah means all the mitzvahs. The, the number of mitzvahs, like you say, number of people. So what do you mean? You mean a certain group? I mean, in other words, all the people. All, all, so I mean, Mitzvah, Mitzvah, I think he doesn't mean after the, the mitzvah of Tayag. He means simply all the, all the mitzvahs, all the mitzvahs of Esavalaisis. And the Ramban says that that's the case, so Ramitzah refers to this, and he came, Ha'atayrah, well, Yichdala Sipuri, Mitzchilat Breshis, Ratero refers, he says, not to what? Not to Tanshu Bechtav, because that's all included, he says, in the Mitzvah. But it refers, God, to, to, well, to the narrative part of Tere from Breshis, from Breshis, from Breshis. Before we get to that, though, what does he say about Kiluchas Evan Yichlan Haluchas Vahamichtav? So, what does that mean? What does it refer to? That's all Sadi right? That's all Yeah. And, but actually, within that Sasa Dibra's Gufa, there is also a differentiation. I don't mean with regard to this passing. What, uh, what differentiation is there within the Sasa Dibra's proper? How are they differentiated? Within the Sasa Dibra's proper, how are they differentiated? No, I don't mean. What? What is the difference between the. I mean, the, the first five and the second five are also to a certain extent that the uh, right, perhaps the French the Gemara says in the Gemara says in Kedushin that the Luchas of Rishenis that the Dibos of Rishenis deal with by not the Lamoke with the Dibos of Rishenis the Lamachveh but um, but uh, I mean I mean a, a more a clearer differentiation what? no no I mean within within that's how Dibos in Yisra yeah what differentiation is there? Are the first two different from all the rest? Yeah, of course, the first two are written in the first person, and directly addressed to Israel. The rest are written in more or less in the third person. Like he says, and so on. In other words, I mentioned referred to the other Dibbles in the third person. This is why the Gemara says in Makis, and the rest, and the Makis really says, the first two, these were directly spoken by the Rebbeinishma. The Raman says, by the man, it doesn't mean that the others were not. Of course, the others were too. I mean, the Ibn Ezra, the Pazik of Ashkanon, after you have all the Sadibros, the Pazik says, 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 the Pazik but that the first two that Meish and Knesset Yisrael were equal with respect to the first two. That they all, that Meish served no function with regard to the first two. These were simply directly delivered from the Rebbein Yisraelam to Knesset Yisrael. And there was no need for Meish to interpret in any way, for Meish to explain. Meish was completely at a par with everyone else. This is a direct scholar. The other Dibreis, these were given Everyone heard it's called Advar Dibra Hashem Kol Kahalchem, but there, I mean, Meisha served as a vehicle. I mean, it was through Meisha that 
that they were given, even everyone could hear the uh, the coil, but it was given through uh, through the uh, through Meshach. Yes, why there are some ashamed for us to interpret that the Lucha is in this pasuk, Lucha is for Evan, that this refers to the first two, and the rest, even as we said today, and the rest go refer to the other uh, to the other eight. Avrakovna says Raman says that Teira refers to the narrative part, right of Breishis, and why is it called Teira? He says, yeah, but it serves as a guide with respect to with respect to Emunim, with respect to Emunim. In what se- in what sense is it a guide? What sense does Breishis say? Say for Breishis and all people, everything is a, a guide. Raman says, what sort of a guide is it? It's actually a twofold guide. First of all, it's a guide simply, as I said earlier, because it, it reveals to us something of the Hanoges Habriel Simply, it's something of the how the Benshlem conducted the world. Mitzkilas. Uh, this is one, one aspect. I mean, no Briyas Elam, Chidush Elam, and so on. Uh, even so, not only that, but I mean, the whole Seder of the Abba is all leading up to. The whole Hishavus, the whole Genesis of Ktes Yisrael, the whole, the whole process. So, partly, therefore, it's a guide in the sense that it gives us with reference to simply the way the Ben Shlelem is Misnai. But secondly, there is a second Lahiroisom in Sefer Breshis. And this is what, not what it teaches us how the Ben Shlelem is Misnai, but how, how the obvious Misnai. This is a separate, uh, uh, a separate heroic. This is also, in a sense, a further indirect scouts. Uh, I mean, you see how how gedolim amisnai, So this is a second medium, quite independently of. of why was the Ramban reluctant? Yeah. Why why the Ramban did not interpret as Ram, as the Ram did? Why not say that one refers to? Teresh Mechsa doesn't the Teresh of Alpeh. So perhaps, of course, the Raman wanted to have HaTeira to refer to Teresh, uh, to be able to include also Sefer Breshis, the narrative part. Perhaps also, though, for another reason, something we perhaps discuss subsequently, perhaps the Raman felt you can't divorce God, Teresh and Mitzvah, to speak of one as Teresh Mechsa and Teresh of Alpeh. Of course, Teresh Mechsa and Teresh of Alpeh, and perhaps, uh, in a sense, they are distinct. This is something which is concrete and fixed and defined and limited, whereas Teva Shabal Peh is much more organic in character, it's much more developing. And this is why, for instance, you know, in the bracha that we say in Bikas HaTeva, the second bracha, we, after we finish Tzvi HaTeva, so we say, Asher Nosalon HaTeva Semes, V'chai Yoilom Nota Besecheinu, V'chai Tashem Nesa HaTeva. So why the two phrases? Asher Nosalon HaTeva Semes, V'chai Yoilom Nota Besecheinu. Why the... Why two? Why wouldn't it have been enough? So the tool says, because Shnasan on Teresh Semes first Teresh Mechsav, first So what is the difference though? Here you say Nasan and here you say Nata. So this is the difference because Teresh Mechsav is something which is fixed and defined, and it's something which is given to you. It's limited. It's an asina. It's a matter and finishes. That's something which is growing and developing and moving. It's all the what it was then it is now it's exactly Kinsinasa but Teo Shabal Peh is something which has a certain organic growth and development and uh, consequently with regard to this we speak of something which is vital not something which is inert but on the contrary it's something which is moving Chaye life not that plant 
grows. Whenever the Gemara speaks of Teosh of Alpeh, this image comes out. The Gemara Chigigas, Bali Natiyos, people who have plants and growth. It's always this sense of growth and uh, and development. So there is, of course, a distinction between Teosh Bechsav and Teosh Alpeh. But nevertheless, could very well be that Amban felt that still Teosh Bechsav itself can never be. While in Chetz they are different, but in terms of considering them as Teiren. In terms of the overall perspective, I mean, the Chalais of Teira as an entity, so you cannot consider one independently of the other. I mean, Teira, uh, Teira is only to be seen, to be understood via Teira Shabal Pet. So you have one Teira like this, another Teira like this. I mean, this is one, one Teira which is to be understood through, I mean, the Teira, the Ksav is to be understood through Teira Shabal Pet. So, in terms of our conceptual grasp, there are different levels. But in terms of constituting the, the, the essence of Taylor, there are ones that the Ramban apparently felt they should both go on the Ramis. There may be something else, though. I mean, in terms simply of the Ramban's total approach uh, to Chumash, uh, the Ramban was, I mentioned uh, a number of times before, the Ramban's approach to Chumash was very much total. I mean, it wasn't just uh, to see it even, I mean, not only the total in the sense of trying to grasp it as a whole, but also total in terms of the overall approach. I mentioned in the beginning that Amman's was a very multifaceted approach to Chumash. And Amman saw Chumash not merely as a vehicle, certainly, of Halakha, but uh, something which, as Teire, is Meire in all its aspects. So where, was the, where would be included the aspects, simply of the narrative elements of, of Teire? Where would this be mentioned? So the Amman apparently felt this needed to be singled out, to be emphasized independently. So the, where is the bad Teire? So Rabban says this is a narrative part. Mitchilas Breishis down Kumeira Hanoshim Baderech Beinyan Hemud. Even though it's not concerned directly to Halachis, but nevertheless it's Meira, it's Teira, because there is something to be learned. Uh, like I said before both from with reference to the Hashgacha and also specifically with reference to the Maisa. No, no, what I'm saying is, no, no, this is something separate. I'm just saying simply that Ramban apparently felt that Teira, the, in even that which is not related to Halach, it needed to be singled out separately as something which is also Meir. I mean, not Hashan that Ram would have interpreted differently, but apparently Ram didn't feel somehow the compulsion to single this out as a separate element. Whereas Ramban did, Ramban felt that the, even the, the narrative element in Teira needs to be singled out separately. Alright, we'll stop here. Um... Yeah, we have to consider yet, first of all, what Ramban says at the beginning. I just want to say this one. Ramban comes back to this later, and we have to consider the relation actually between Teir and Nevoah in this respect. Ramban says later that Nevoah is much more personal in character than Teir. Somehow the personality of the Novi is more of a factor in Teir, in Nevoah rather than it is in Teir. The Teir is completely impersonal. So we have to consider this, whether this has any bearing on this phrase, me piv and then the art just to do such in the sequence that Eloi then discussed, then what the pshat is of terech suma nitna? And what is the problem really of terech suma nitna, megillah, megillah nitna? The Gemara and Gitan discusses about halacha, whether you can write a megillah for a tinek or not, but alright, it's a gel halacha, then of course it's a historical problem too, I suppose, and when it was suma nitna, and does it have also some sort of philosophic import? I mean, it's just a question of Simply how the Maisa was, they write it right away, they wrote it later, I mean, what, how it was written, or is it a, or perhaps there's something else involved also, and then what does the Mandama who holds Megillah Megillah Nitna, what does he think? 
Uh, Alright, uh, yeah. then the, I might go on to discuss the relation of certain scientific problems to Heo de Sharebino. Then later on, he speaks also right, of Seamus. This is a, a rather difficult problem. Uh, and also, the conception that Ramban develops particularly is the importance of the idea of Taylor, this Kodma, the Briyas Eila. What, uh, what this means? What it means? It's Taylor's Kodma, the Briyas Eila. That means Roshim, my Morim. What it means? The Gemara Chikig also. What it means? Kodma, the Briyas Eila. Ramban refers you again to this in Shmois. And that possibly, Ashikosafti, I'll just say that with him. Ashikosafti, the Hiraisam. So the Ramban is bothered simply Pshut Shemikra. What does it mean? Ve'etna lo chas lucha yisro eben va'atera va'mitzah shikosafti lo hiraisa. So what does it mean? Shikosafti lo hiraisa. And who wrote the Taylor later? Who's the one who wrote the Taylor? Meishu wrote the Taylor, right? Meishu Rabbeinu wrote the Taylor. I mean, doesn't what was written by the Rabbeinu Shleilam? Only the luchais, right? Va'michta michta v'rakimu chavusal aluchais and only luchais. The rest was written by the Rebbe Nishloim in Piyagvura. He was told, but the rest he wrote. So why should Kasafti lo heraisam? So the Ramban says, so he has two shots in there. Ah, she also wrestled with the problem. The Ramban says like this: Vetzalach asluchay so even and ra'atir va'mitzvah. I'll give you all of this. Ashe Kasafti lo heraisam refers back to luchay so even. That's one shot. Second shot, he says v'yitochen. He says right there in the Mishpatim that perhaps. The Ashkasati Lo Yeraisam refers not only to Luchay Seven but to Vatir Mitzvah as well. But that uh, this is Miremes. He says, "Aziv Rabbi Seinu Shehoisa Terak Suva Lefonov Shekodman Libriyas Oelam Mechor Romati Linyan Zei." He says, "Vitchilat Teichav Reishim." So Raman there says that perhaps simply in the passage, Ashkasati Lo Yeraisam. This is Miremes. So but what uh, what does this mean? I mean, what in what sense? I mean, it, in one is Kodman Libriyas Oelam, and then there was a Pesinus Sater. I mean, so. What do we have to understand by it? I don't know that we'll get through with all of this um, uh, next time. All right. Well, but you you prepare until I uh, prepare until the end. Uh, <laughs> I don't know exactly how far.